thankful this morning for your grace that is given to us. And as we open up your word today, I pray that we would see that grace, that we would encounter it, that we would make sure before we leave here today that we have embraced the grace that you offer to us. We invite you now to uh, speak to us from your written word, to show us something about yourself that we have yet to see. We invite your Holy Spirit to continue this morning his work of conviction in our hearts, to show us how we can change and then to help us become more like Jesus. In his good name we pray, amen and amen. I invite you to take your Bible and look with me in the book of Esther, Esther chapter 6. Esther chapter 6, and we want to continue our series through this book of Esther, looking at how Jesus is better, and today we're going to focus on this aspect, that Jesus is a better servant. And we've seen throughout Esther that anything that is shown to us about the goodness of anyone in this book, that Jesus is better. And we're going to see today how he is a better servant. I'm going to ask you a question. You ain't got to answer this one, but just kind of think of it with me. As a kid, did you ever accidentally or on purpose get lost? Yeah. Did you ever, well, maybe I should ask this. Did you ever try to intentionally lose a kid? Uh, that's different. I, I did it one time. I was in TGNY. Remember back in the day, TGNY? And I thought, I'm going to hide from my mama. And uh, I, I found a place to hide when they had the racks with the clothes there on a circle. And I kind of got in a little circle. And, and I hid there for a while and, and uh, everything else. And that went on for a while. And then I could see my mama getting a little bit frantic and starting to kind of worry about where her son went and everything else. And then I jumped out and said, ta-da! I thought it was hilarious. She not so much. <laughs> in fact, I believe her words were, and again, I was 18, so it's kind of difficult to remember. Uh, <laughs> I believe her words to me at that time was, wait till we get home and I tell your daddy and you're going to wish you could get lost. <laughs> well, I think it seems like everyone has one of those stories to where they accidentally get lost or as a parent, they accidentally lose a kid. If, if one of your kids was to, to show up missing, if one of your kids was to become lost, you would immediately begin to look for them and you would not stop until there was some resolution to your search. Well, the Bible tells us that God has a covenant people. And when the Bible uses that word covenant, it, it means that God has a family, that God is a father who has adopted some children into his family. He has made them part of his family. And over and over again in the, New, in the Old Testament, God has said, I will be your God, you will be my people. And if you kind of stray off the path, if you go off where you shouldn't be, I'm going to come pursue you. I'm going to come find you. And in Esther, we see that heart of God. We see a group of people who have wandered off the, the way that God wanted them to go, that they, they've gotten kind of lost, and, and God is relentlessly pursuing them to find them over and over again. And in this book of Esther, we see God's fatherly heart for his covenant children while they're living off in a land called Persia.
father. Mordecai is one of those children of God. But a dangerous, a godless man by the name of Haman has risen up in power by the time we get to Esther chapter 6. And he has issued a death warrant against Mordecai, but not just against Mordecai, but against all of God's people, all of the Jewish people, which would include Esther and millions and millions of other people. (coughs) Esther is in trouble. Mordecai is in trouble. The people of God are in trouble. What will God the Father do? That's the question that we'll try to answer this morning as we walk through the narrative in Esther chapter 6. And the way I want us to approach it is just to, to note a couple of things that jump out to me from this chapter that are ultimately going to show us how of all the servants that are involved, of all the people who are trying to serve the king in this chapter, that Jesus is a better servant. Here are three things I want to mention to you this morning from this text. First is this. It is always best to assume God's providence than it is to doubt it. It's always best to assume God's providence than doubt it. That word providence, let's take a minute and unpack it for just a second because we're going to see it in the text. God's providence in our context this morning simply means that God is sovereign, He's in control. And God is good, and because he is sovereign, and because he is good, he knows the future, and he, God, is always at work to unfold his perfect plan. Even when we cannot see it, even when we cannot sense it, even when everything around us seems to indicate otherwise, the providence of God means that there is a plan God has. And nothing will deter him from accomplishing his good plan in the lives of his children. So I want to encourage you this morning to go ahead and make the decision to always assume God's providence in your life. Let me show you from the text how that happens. Esther chapter 6 opens in this way. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. For the, <laughs> for the king, nothing would put into sleep like a good history book. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, former WWE superstars, and they were also... Two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus or King Xerxes. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. Now you remember from a few weeks ago that, that Mordecai overheard a plan to kill the king and Mordecai let people know about it and the king's life was saved. One of the themes of the book of Esther is the providence of God. Sometimes in our Bibles, sometimes we see that God works 
works through his visible hand of miracle, but sometimes God works through his invisible hand of providence. In the book of Esther, God's name is never mentioned. In the book of Esther, an angel never shows up. In the book of Esther, there is not a prophet who speaks, nor is there a miracle that happens. So how is God at work in the story of Esther? God is at work through his providence. You do not see the invisible hand of God, but you see the effects of the invisible hand of God. Just like you don't see the wind when it blows, but you see the effects of the wind when the wind is blowing. This is how the providential hand of God is at work. And God's providence is working as Esther chapter 6 opens up. There is this king, Ahasuerus. Xerxes is his Greek name, and he has given permission to his right-hand man to kill all of God's covenant people. But the king has a sleepless night. That's not a coincidence. That's providence. He asked for someone to read a bit of history to him. That's not coincidence. That is providence. And the person happened to read about the assassination attempt of the king that happened a few years prior to that, that Mordecai exposed. That's not a coincidence, my friend. That is the providential hand of God involved behind the scenes. Xerxes asked, what did we ever do for this guy? Because it was customary. If you save the life of the king, you got something. Xerxes has a moment of clarity. Xerxes says, I should have done something for this man. I should have done something to reward him. And we didn't do anything. And this, God's providential hand, this sets into motion a series of events that we'll see in a few weeks that saves the life of Mordecai, of Esther, and of all those Jewish people, because the providential hand of God was at work behind the scenes. Our takeaway from this, then, is that we need to assume God's providential hand instead of doubting it. Now, look, I know, just as you know, that in life there will be times when we wonder, God, where are you? God, what are you doing? God, I don't understand. And I think it is okay for us to ask God those questions. He's big enough to handle those questions. And it's fine, I think, for us to come to God with those questions. And in those moments when our faith is tested, in those moments when we cannot see the visible hand of God. May we make a commitment to trust the invisible hand of God and his providence. You see, when you cannot trace God's hand, you can still trust God's heart. And it doesn't look like from Esther's perspective that God's hand is at work, but God is working Behind the scenes, there's nothing wrong with you and I going to God and saying, God, I don't understand, but I know you're up to something, so would you show me what 
your doing. Would you let me see a glimpse of your hand? This involves faith. It's trusting the the providence and the presence of God before we see it. Listen, I want to encourage you this morning for you to know that God is at work in your life and he is working everything out for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. You need to assume that God's providence is there. He's working behind the scenes. There are a lot of things I do not know, but I do know this. I know that God is sovereign. I know that God is control. I know that God is present, and I know that God is good. And so today, I would encourage you to assume God's providence rather than doubt it. It makes Jesus a better servant. But secondly, humility should be pursued. Humility should be pursued. Oh, hey, man. Sometimes I like to, I like to, to laugh because if you don't laugh in life, I find that you just end up doing a lot of crying. And, uh, and I have to look at people week in and week out. I have to laugh. Uh, and, and sometimes I've had people chide me that, that humor has no place in a pulpit. And my, my response to that is twofold. Well, one of my mentors says it's not true that we know God has a sense of humor. And if you don't believe that, just look at some people he created. That, that's his take on one of them. <laughs> but the other is going to be the text we're about to see. Uh, God's got, man, God is funny. And, and we're going to see it in this text. Humility should be pursued. Now, now why? Why should we pursue humility? And, and the reason we should pursue it's very simple. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's what James tells us. Well, look at verse 4. The king said, who's that in the court? Now, Haman had just entered, not a coincidence, the providence. Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. Last week he built those gallows and now uh, Haman is saying, let's get a plan together. King, here's how I want to do this. Entering the court is the one guy who wants to kill all of God's people and who had been given the legal right to murder Mordecai, the guy who saved the king's life. It's not a coincidence. It's not it just so happened. This is God's plan. Verse 5, and the king's young men told him, Haman is there. He's the guy out there who's standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom Mordecai, so he's mean, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? He's got to be thinking, I mean, this is great. And Haman said to the king, Haman thinks it's him. Haman said, whom this, this man, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. 
Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry! Take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sat at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. Haman, who was on the cusp of asking if he could proceed with the plan to crucify Mordecai, now has to organize his parade. God is funny. <laughs> Imagine the look on Haman's face when the king says, all right, do everything you said, but do it for Mordecai, the Jew. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. <laughs> then Mordecai returned to the king's gate in Hebrew, I think it translates like this. <laughs> oh, Haman is so haughty. Haman is so full of himself. Haman is so prideful. And in fact, Haman is a case study of pride. And I think it would behoove us for just a second to stop and to think about humility and pride and the place it has in our lives. You see, if I were to try to explain this to us a little bit in further detail, I would say a couple of things. And, and one of the things I would say is this. Humility is a direction, not a destination. None of us can say, well, I used to be proud. I'm glad that's behind me. None of us can say, I finally reached humility. In fact, the day that you brag about your humility... It's the day you've lost it. Humility is not a destination. It is a direction. The only thing that we can say, the best that we can say, is that we are proud people who are pursuing humility by the grace of God. Remove from your mind the idea of arriving at the destination of humility and instead, <clears throat> by the grace of God, venture off in the direction of humility. Because humility is a direction, not a destination. It's also important for us to understand that pride is about my glory. Humility is about God's glory. Listen. I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell you something that will simplify your life. Once you settle the question of who gets the glory, everything else gets settled. Once you decide who gets the glory, that makes 99% of the decisions in your life. Should I do this or should I do that? Do what will bring God the most glory. That clarifies things very quickly. What will give me 
the most glory leads to a very different conclusion than what will give God the most glory. Everything we say and do should be filtered through this question. Where is the glory going? What is best for God and what will help others? Can you imagine how our lives would change if we filtered every decision through those simple questions? What should I do? I should do whatever it is that gives God the most glory because pride is about my glory. Humility is about God's glory. And you see, pride leads us to death. Humility will lead us to life. All sin stems from pride. All sin is birthed out of pride. All virtue and holiness and glory to God comes from a place of humility. Is your heart proud or is your heart humble? God opposes the proud. He's about to oppose and work against Haman. But the opposite of pride is humility. And Mordecai has not been the perfect example of that, but he is walking a path of humility. I want you to take an honest assessment of your life. Who do you most resemble in this way, Haman or Mordecai? Make a commitment to pursue humility. And third, sorrow without repentance is worthless. Sorrow without repentance is worthless. Let's see how Haman responds to this situation in verse 12. But Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered, mourning, sorrow. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men, and the word wise there is very, very loosely applied. Then his wise men and wife Zeresh all said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, dear, this is the beginning of the end for you, if he is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Haman is now confronted with a new truth. Haman experiences sorrow. Notice that he was mourning. He experienced sorrow, but not repentance. And it accomplishes absolutely nothing. See, there is a difference in godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow about sin is when you are sorrowful that you got caught. Godly sorrow is when you're sorrowful because you sinned against God. Worldly sorrow is sorrow over what your dumb actions have caused and the consequences. Godly sorrow is when you mourn over the fact that you've offended a holy God in your sin. Paul makes this statement in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. 
He says, for godly grief, godly grief, godly sorrow produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Haman is an illustration of worldly sorrow. Consider with me for just a moment Haman's position. At this moment, is Haman healthy or sick? He's healthy. Is he rich or poor? He's rich. Is he in power or has he lost all power? He's still in power. Is he famous or unknown? He's famous. But it all turns in an instant. It all turns in a day. Is that you today? Are you Haman? You feel no sense of urgency because everything is going well. And it will until it doesn't. Until it collapses in an instant. And for some people, even in this room today, that instant may be your death. Oh, it may work for you until you close your eyes looking at all that you've accomplished and then open your eyes and see the wrath of God in the eyes of Jesus looking at you. You see, there is no hope for Haman today. He died. He stood before God. He was judged. There's no hope for Haman today But there is hope for you. You are alive. You're still here. It's not too late. Grieving accomplishes nothing without repentance and acknowledging in your sin that you sinned against God, that sin is your problem, and that Jesus is your only hope. Now in hearing these words, And these are hard words to hear. Wouldn't it be great to hear how to go from pride to humility and spare yourself the fate by which Haman was destroyed? You see, the way out of pride is not for you to work harder at being humble. The way out of pride is to look at Jesus' humility For you see, Jesus is the better servant, an assuredly better servant to his king than Haman. This is why there's a great text in Philippians which tells us to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility to count others more significant than yourselves, to let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others, to have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Jesus, who in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, 
taking upon him the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every single name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess in heaven on earth, above the earth, under the earth. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. My friend, let me introduce you this morning to a man named Jesus who is a better servant. Haman wanted to wear the king's robes. King Jesus was stripped of his robes. Haman wanted to wear that king's crown. Jesus wore a crown of thorns. Haman never repented of his sin. Jesus had no sin at all for which to repent. Haman plotted to kill all of God's people. Jesus planned to die for all people. Haman <coughs> wanted to honor his king, and he wanted his king to honor him publicly. Jesus was willingly stripped and publicly shamed. Haman would not forgive one one man of one thing, but Jesus will forgive anyone of anything. Haman wanted to crucify his enemy. Jesus was crucified in place of his enemies. Haman raised himself up from uh, to, to make himself glorious, only to be taken down in death. Jesus humbled himself and was raised up from death to glory. Haman became proud like his king Ur sees, but by the grace of God, we can become humble like our King Jesus. Jesus is a better servant. I can think of no one else better to follow. Have you made the decision to follow him? In just a second, we're going to sing. As we stand and sing, we, we call this our time of commitment. It's a time that we provide you, whether you want to do this in your pew, whether you want to come down to this altar to do business with God. Maybe you've realized today that you're looking at your life and how great everything is and you're trusting in all the greatness around you for your eternity. Jesus wants us to have an abundant life. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is everything that's great around you one day will be gone. And all that will matter on that day is your relationship with Jesus. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus today, we would love to share with you privately in a quiet place how you can have that relationship. If you've got questions about that, when we stand and sing, just come down here and just say, hey, I need to talk to somebody about what it means to make Jesus my Lord to be saved, and we'll get you with someone this morning who can help you understand that a little bit better. Or maybe you've given your heart to Jesus, but maybe you need to serve him more faithfully, more fully because of his example in serving us. Maybe your step today is a recommitment in following Jesus closely 
in serving him faithfully. I don't know the condition of your soul when you walked in today, but I know what it can be when you leave here today. Don't leave here today apart from Jesus because you don't have to. He's a better servant, and he's worth all the service we can render for him. Let's bow together and pray. Father God, as we bow together before you, as we think about how you are the better servant, as we think about how you served us with the ultimate example of going to the cross, of humbling yourself, of dying for our sins. Father, I pray if there's one here today that has yet to trust in you and that death for their sins, that they would do so today. Whatever you're placing upon our hearts, Father, I pray we would simply say yes. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray.